Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Welcome to church. I don't think it gets better than what we have just experienced in church. All right, find your seats. Hopefully all the kids are snug as bugs down there, having fun. I have to tell you this, this isn't in my plan, but um, God is so significant, and he speaks so clearly when we are trying to pay attention. Robert and Robin, do you know how many years ago it was that you started being a massive back-getter of mine? Specifically, more than that, but when I noticed that you were my back-getter was 16 years ago. And um, this couple, we went to church together for many, many, many decades. And um, they went to church with us long before I even knew them because I was young and they had extended family that knew my family. And um, then we were in ministry together at Riverside Church. And my husband and I were newlyweds and we got broken into in our home. And it was a pretty severe break-in and it was like 11 o'clock at night. Kip was working night shift at that point and I was coming home from visiting my mom's house because um, I was a scaredy cat to be home alone. And um, I lived in West Peoria in a shoebox of a house. It was tiny. And I walked into my home and there were four men in my home. And do you know who showed up the next morning at my house to install a home security system, Robert did. Which was significant because we had less than zero money. I worked in ministry, I was paid in peanuts. Um, My husband was finishing his education at Bradley and we were broke as broke. And God sent Robert tooling over to my house to install a Sonatrol security system. And somehow, Robert keeps showing up. (laughs) When I most need a back-getter, Robert's face pops up. So, friend, oh my gracious. I don't know how I'm going to preach after that. I'm just like a crying mess. (sighs) Thanks, guys. Super significant. Okay. We're going to lighten this up a little bit, tiny bit, because goodness knows I need it. Okay, I want to see a show of hands for anyone who, as a kid, you love to know the plans for the next day. Show of hands. You loved to know the plans. I loved to know the plans. (laughs) This is my nephew. I know this to be true. Kristen, I see you back there. Nearly every night, one of my three kids or all three of my kids will say to me, Mom, what are the plans for tomorrow? And in very great detail, we will discuss and we will dialogue about the plans for tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes, and in the morning, one of my three kids, or all three kids, will say to me, Mom, what are the plans for today? And I will pause and I will say, all of the plans in great detail for the day. And then every afternoon, one of my three kids, or all three of my kids, will say to me, Mom, what are the plans for tonight? And if my patient's cup is brimming full, I will very calmly say, my children, 
I do believe you know in full detail the plans for the day. Still the plans. But on occasion, one of my three kids, or all three of my kids, will come to me, and they will say something like, Mom, we know the plan for today is dot, dot, dot. And I will just fall to my knees and say, miracles abound. They listen. <laughs> and then my inner celebratory dance concludes, and they're looking at me like I'm a crazy woman. And they'll say to me, well, we know what the plans are. We were sort of hoping to convince you of changing the plans. And then they will lay out their plan for what they would hope the plan would shift to. And sometimes those children are successful in shifting my mind, in shifting the plans. Can any of you relate to your children having done that to you? Can any of you relate to being the person that was able to shift the plan for your parent? Dalton, I knew you were going to raise your hand. I felt it in my bones. Well, how many of you have ever been less than thrilled, though, with a change in plans? Yeah, me too. A time or two. Today we're kicking off a new series called Change of Plans. And we're going to discuss and we're going to discover the biblical text where humans were used to shift God's mind. Now, I know this could be controversial, so um, we are going to try very hard to take nothing out of context so that if you have any struggles or issues, you can go to the one source, which is the Word of God, to figure out if this is accurate. And um, we're going to talk about the Bible stories where people were able to influence God. Now, I want to be super clear. This is not a serious questioning if God is sovereign, because we know God is sovereign. Amen? Yeah, we know he's sovereign. We also know that God loves to use his children to partner with him in the plan. One of my greatest joys is when my kids partner with me to complete a plan. It's so wonderful. So um, today's message, it's a really deep title, and you're going to have to really process this because the title is going to be, Hold Up, Say What? That's what I say to my kids every now and then. Hold up, say what? Now, before we dive into the biblical text, I usually love to dive right in, but you got to hear this backstory. Does anyone remember the drama that traveled around the country called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames? Anybody? It was a super dramatic event. They would come to churches and arenas, and they would put on this very scary program about heaven and hell, and you would question even if you were saved, if you needed to go get re-saved. Terrifying. Well, at the time, I was about 14. We attended a church called Faith, and um, I babysat for these, this couple that was, in my mind, really old. And I'm very pained to tell you now that they were about 35, <laughs> maybe 40, and um, it, that is so hard to admit. But um, they grew up in a religion that didn't really teach much about the Bible, and so very vague. Um, so they did not know of who Jesus was and had a personal relationship with him. So I was their babysitter. So every now and then I would kind of throw some nuggets of truth and Jesus into my, you know, drive home with them after they'd been out on their date. And um, my dad also worked with the mom. And so he here and there would preach the gospel to her as he could. And um, at one point I decided to invite them to Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, and literally... They had the hell scared out of them. 
they were like the first two people at the altar weeping. And I was instantly completely obsessed with seeing people come to know Jesus. Radically obsessed. And they drove me home because I was 14. I couldn't drive. And my mom said she was sitting in the living room. She was babysitting their kids. Bless her heart. She's sitting in the living room. She sees Rob come walking along the sidewalk. And she said his face was aglow. His countenance had changed. And in that moment, he decided he was going to start praying about everything. He had prayed about nothing up to this point. So he bought a leather chair. He put it in his office. And every morning, he would sit in that chair, and he would pray. And God started answering his prayers right and left. It was crazy. Fast forward a few months. I'm babysitting. And I said to him, hey, how's the new church that you know, you're going to? Are you loving it? You tell me what you love. They're like, we love it. The worship's amazing. The messages are amazing. We have one struggle, and then it's our toddler. Like, he has just started lying. He's become this little liar, liar, pants on fire. And I was like, wow, like, I know Jacob well. That, does not, that doesn't fit his character. And I said, well, tell me more. And they said, well, every Sunday he comes out of kids' church, and he just starts lying to us. Like, I don't know what church toddlers talk about, but he has become such an avid liar. And I said, really, um, tell me more. And they said, well, he says he loves the snacks, but he loves it most when they tell him about the fish that eats the men. <laughs> and they're looking at me with huge eyes, and I was like, um, respectfully, have you ever heard the Bible story about a guy named Jonah? Uh, yeah, he was eaten by a fish. And they were like, no, no. There's no way. And I decided at that moment, 24 some plus years ago, I would preach on Jonah someday. And so now that is today. So in case you're tempted to check out, because you're like, this story is so familiar, I'm not going to learn anything. For starters, do you know that he was not eaten by a whale? Jonah and the whale? It ain't biblical, girls, girls and boys. It was a great fish, is what the Bible says. A great fish ate Jonah. So there's something for everyone in this account. We are going to turn to Jonah chapter 1. It's going to be on the screens. You can follow along. Guys, we're going to read a lot of scripture tonight, so hang tight. If you think the Bible is boring, you have never read this account. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Okay, let's pause here. We tend to be a very judgmental type, we humans. Um, I would be willing to bet that at least a few of us in the room, myself included, have judged Jonah for his disobedience. Like, how difficult is it? You're a prophet. You got a word. Obey the word. It's really difficult sometimes to give the word the way God says the word. It's scary. So God says, go to Nineveh, and he goes the opposite way. You're going to see up here. So he starts down here in this area of Joppa down here, and he's supposed to just go right up here to Nineveh, and he instead goes to the end of the known world at that time to Tarshish. He boards a ship to Tarshish. He's going to get as far away as possible to get away from God. However... We need some context because we need to know why Jonah was running. He wasn't just scared of the word that God gave him. He was scared of the results of the word. 
Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria at the time was dominating the near east of the nation that Jonah was from. So they're going through city by city, conquering the land, plundering the land, destroying everything, taking over, telling them, like, we're the kings, we are the rulers now. And they are rising to world power against the Hebrews, against the nation that Jonah is from. And so this is super significant. Now, this was at the close of Solomon's reign. You've probably heard of King Solomon. At this time is when we are kind of being brought into this story. And so they're just destroying all of the northern kingdom of Israel. Not cool if you are a Hebrew. Now, Jonah's name, it actually means dove. And he was called to be a messenger for God. But if he gave the message that God told him to give, it would prolong the enemy's ability to continue conquering the land, his people, God's people. And so he's sitting here thinking, well, if I obey, they get to keep their weapons. They get to continue to wage war against us. Why would I do that? I think God has gotten this one wrong. So we find in this account of 2 Kings 14.25 something interesting. Jeroboam II recovered the territories of Israel between Lay Bohemoth and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, son of Imitai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So we're finding here, Jonah was not only a prophet of God, I think sometimes we can box ourselves in, like you're a worship pastor, you're a salesman, you're a doctor, you're a dentist. We all have these multi-gifts, these multi-things happening in our lives, right? So not only was he was a prophet, but he was a statesman. He was helping be responsible for helping push back these territories that were being taken over. So God comes in and gives him this message, and it makes zero sense. In fact, if he delivered the message, he would probably be charged with treason from his own nation. So why would he do that? This gives us a little more compassion for Jonah's pause, doesn't it? It does me anyway. I wouldn't want to go give the word to the superpower of the world and be like, hey, you're going to be destroyed. Have fun with that. That would not be fun. Jonah's in a tough spot. Okay, let's pick back up. So he goes down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah is sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them have offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? Where are you from? What line of work are you in? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answers, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. 
Why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice, and they vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged a great fish, see, to swallow him. Great fish. Zero mention of a whale. Some of you are suddenly questioning everything you ever learned in kids' church. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. I will forever recall the looks on my friends' faces when I read them this story. You would have thought they themselves were swallowing a human whole. I mean, it's just like, what? Their minds were blown. They were saying things like, wait, a fish ate him and he lived? I know. Amazing, right? They were so relieved to find out that their son was not a little liar, liar, pants on fire, hanging out with the toddlers of church. Toddlers can be scary. You know what, though? I wonder how many times we've accused one another. Liar! That's not truth! That's not accurate! And really, we just don't know the full story. We don't know the context. We don't know what has gone in to the truth. All right, let's look at some standout portions from chapter 1. So because of the great fish story, there's been a lot of question from a lot of people if the book of Jonah is historically accurate. They're like, it's fiction, it's a parable, it's allegory. Well, Jesus unmistakably mentions this, and he regards it as historical fact. In Matthew 12, 39, it says this, But Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins. We're going to read about that. At the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. And so it would take considerable straining for us to try and make it into fiction when Jesus' language was so specific. He, he called out three things. He called it a sign of his own resurrection. He put the fish, the repentance of Nineveh, his resurrection, and the judgment day in the same category. Now, surely he was not talking of his resurrection as fiction. We know his resur resurrection was not fiction. So he would have not categorized them if they were not the same. They were truth. So he's speaking of reality when he spoke of resurrection and judgment day, which is still to come. And so Jesus, accept, accepting this, the Jonah story as accurate, gave people around him the ability to accept it as well. So the, great, the fish, it actually means great fish in the text or sea monster. No whale. 
So the point of this story is actually so much deeper than maybe we've ever noticed before. It's not just a fish swallowing a dude. It is meant to be a miraculous testimony for the mission of Nineveh to be successful. See, because if it weren't for an astonishing miracle, the people would have never believed Jonah. They would have given him no ability to even speak into their lives. Luke 11.30, what happened to him, meaning Jonah, was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. So see, the obvious thing that we need to pick up in this story is that, yes, Jonah was swallowed by a fish. We all know that. But God was giving a message to a prophet because he needed to prove a point of what was to come. Verse 5, let's look at this. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. Have you ever faced a storm in life and you have been so convinced that you just need to offload? Like, I have just got to get all of these responsibilities and these relationships out of my responsibility because I cannot handle, girl cannot cope right now. Anyone? Phil and Heather and myself. You know what hit me when I read this? I had not seen this. The sailors were so convinced that they needed to offload that they began shouting to the wrong gods and they began throwing all of their cargo overboard. Now this is significant. This is significant. We're going to get to that. But I want to ask you, is there anything in your world right now that you're shouting to the wrong god about? Like, for instance, maybe your boss has given someone a promotion and you felt like you deserved it. And so you begin shouting about the fact that you should have gotten the promotion. Um, And in fact, instead of just staying the course and continuing to work hard and maybe earning the next promotion, you've decided to jump ship and go to a different job where you're going to have to start over rebuilding the experience that you had in the previous job. That's shouting to the wrong God. Or maybe you've thrown your cargo overboard when um, you decided that a church you attended, none of you would do this, never. I, I truly believe you wouldn't. I really do. A church you attended handled the storm of COVID differently than you would have handled it. And so you just started throwing all your cargo overboard. The years that you'd poured into that church, you're just bailing it all overboard because they handled it differently than you would. And you're jumping ship to go find another church who isn't weathering that storm only to find out that every church weathers storms and every church has to learn how to lean in to leading through a storm. And maybe you were meant to be part of the deck crew that was bailing water off the top of the ship when the storm hit, but instead you threw all your cargo and you bailed. I think when we do that, God has to send someone else. I really do. The account tells us that the sailors thought lightening the load of their ship would help them through the storm. I think it's because they were shouting to the wrong gods. That's why they were so confused. They're shouting to these gods that can do nothing for them. So often, when life gets stormy, our first instinct is, what can I offload? How can I bail on this? I cannot handle this. 
And I think that many times we're not supposed to offload. We're not supposed to get rid of responsibility. We are supposed to be asking the right God and the right people for the help we need for that storm. You know, you have to wonder, how long did it take those soldiers to recoup all of that cargo? Because if they were a merchant ship being hired to take all of these items to this other land, and they threw it all overboard, can you imagine? Like, what that would sound like right now would be like, are you kidding me? I have been waiting for that couch for six months, and you threw it overboard? What the Tarshish? I'm pretty sure the deck crew lost their jobs that day. They met God, but they lost their jobs. <laughs> Guys, I think we have to be the people that when the storms hit, we're not shouting about the wrong things to the wrong gods, talking to the wrong people. We are looking for the right people that can point us to the right God to get the right answer to help fix the storm. Okay, Jonah has so much to teach us, I have to rush on. Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the God, or then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. How awkward. He says, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. That's what he does, he hears us. You threw me into the deep ocean, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me, and I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. That's disgusting. I would have been so claustrophobic. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O oh Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all of my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Talk about traumatic. I bet Jonah was forever triggered by the smell of fish. His mother-in-law's like, we're having fish tonight. And he's like. It really does stand out to me, though. God forced Jonah. He forced him into a place where when this storm is hitting, he cannot discuss it with anyone because he's in the belly of a fish. He cannot talk to the wrong crowd. He cannot do anything other than pray to God. And the interesting part about his prayer is that he is praying the Psalms in this prayer, which meant he is recalling the truths he already knew. Like he's running away, but he still knows the truth. And how many know the truth is what sets us free, right? That's when he got upchucked by the fish onto the beach, when he realized the truth. See, people can come alongside us and give great godly advice, and they should, and great counsel, but the Father is the one that holds the lifeline. So if anyone, you are trying to replace Jesus with anyone, 
no matter how wonderful he or she is, no matter how long they've walked with God, if Jesus isn't your lifeline, you have the wrong source. So it's believed by historians and biblical, um, all sorts of biblical people, all the people, that Jonah's return uh, to the beach front from the mouth of the fish was witnessed by many people because it was a busy seaport. So there's all of these deckhands probably, and all of a sudden this sea monster comes up out of the ocean and vomits up a man onto the beach. Like, Lauren, your therapy business would have been booming in Joppa. <laughs> so much therapy would have been needed after this. But I want us to imagine the state Jonah's probably in. Like, he didn't know he was going to the beach that day. He didn't get to buy his cool beach shorts. Like, he had just come out stinking from the belly of a fish. So he probably smelled like actual fish gut. He probably smelled like his own bile because there are not rest stops in the belly of a fish. He probably had been vomiting from the trauma of realizing God did not let me drown. I would rather have drowned than give the message God wanted me to give. He still wasn't off the hook. He was freaking out until he decided to pray. Who knows if your clothes stay on your body when a fish eats you? I don't know. I don't want to find out. But he might have been naked. He probably looked awful. And all of these people are standing there gawking at him like, what did I eat last night? Does it get any worse, friends? Dripping and slimy fish hack. So nasty. Chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. Still the plan, Jonah. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large it took him three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard uh, what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all of the violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Do not miss this. When God saw what they had done and how they put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Now, there is no doubt that when Jonah went in to preach, he was using the example of the fish upchucking him. And the witnesses that saw it were probably following him, like, fact check, it happened. So, but he's speaking of the God of the nation that Nineveh is destroying the, his people of. So they're terrified. They have every right to believe that this is truth that he is saying. 
But see, Jonah did not come to Nineveh to ask them to repent, to encourage them to humble themselves. No, he came to be like, you are going down. You're about to be destroyed. See, these people who moments earlier, they were evil in God's sight. They humbled themselves. They repented. And they experienced the supernatural grace of the maker of the universe. And they step into this incredible relationship with God. And because of their repentance, they change God's mind. Incredible. Church, when we humble ourselves and we repent, we too can be the people that help shift God's mind. We too can be the people that help carry out the perfect plan for redemption of others. This is a huge God story. It is said there were 120,000 people in Nineveh who turned to Jesus. Well, turned to God. They didn't know Jesus at that point. Who turned to the Spirit of God, the one true God. Their lives were spared. Can you even imagine the rejoicing in here today over getting to sing some songs in a free country and the generosity of a church caused rejoicing? But can you imagine the rejoicing of a nation of people who one minute ago thought that they were going to be destroyed by the God of the universe and the next minute is experiencing his grace? Unbelievable. But we need to check in on our buddy Joe because he is not doing well at this point. Jonah's pride was like super bruised right now because he's like, God, here we are. I obeyed you. I gave the message. And then you changed the plan. Like make me look like a total idiot in front of 120,000 people. Thanks for that. How do we respond though? Like again, we're judging Jonah, but... How would you respond if you were the prophet that God sort of left out to dry in front of 120,000 people? You know, like they'd probably be like, see, like false prophet. Jonah, I don't think you knew what you were talking about, bro. That would be humiliating. Pride can get us. But the thing is this, when we're humble and when we're repentant, We don't have to worry about that because it's not about us anymore. Once God's found you, it's not about you anymore. It's about the ones you can find. I remember when I was young, I would fish with my grandpa all the time, and he was like probably my favorite person on the planet at the time. I'm really sorry, Mom. I I like you a lot too. Um, But I was little, and he gave me like donuts and coffee every morning, and Grandma was worried it would stunt my growth, so I appreciate him giving me coffee every every morning. (laughs) We'd be fishing, though, and I would cast my line out, and it would get stuck in the reeds, and I would just be, like, yanking on it. And he'd be like, hey, sweetheart, how you respond in this moment is going to determine the outcome and if we get to keep fishing or not. Because right now you're sort of freaking out and yanking on the line, and um, it would be better if you give me a moment to kind of just troll the boat around to the other side of the reed where it's hooked, and it'll come right out. And I realized in that moment that we all do that a lot. Like, we freak out. We think that, like, oh, God, my character is stuck. Like, people are going to think I'm an idiot. This is going to make me look bad. And God's like, just chill out. Just give me a minute to troll around here and figure this out for you instead of yanking on the line. Like, Heidi, sweetheart, 
the way you respond this time, it's going to determine the outcome. We need to, we need to do that. Like friends, the way you respond this time to your boss talking down to you, it's going to determine the outcome. The way you're responding to your spouse this time, it's going to determine the outcome. The way you respond with repentance this time when you're tempted to step into sin, it's going to determine the outcome. Like just take a minute. Let God have a minute to help you figure out. Stop yanking on the line. Our response determines the outcome and the way the Father gets to handle the situation. Jonah 4, we're almost done. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home, God, that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew you were a merciful and compassionate God. You are slow to get angry. You are filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. Like, yo, drama much? (laughs) Verse 4, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Do you notice how God asked Jonah this question? Like, instead of condemning him right out of the gate, son, you know what obedience looks like. He's like, hey, let's think about this a minute. God's like letting him process a little bit, which I appreciate. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Joe doesn't answer God right away. He's sitting there to sulk and to hope that God really is going to destroy the people as he said they would be destroyed. I think God was giving Jonah time to have a bit of a heart check. I think sometimes we sit and we want to sulk and God's like, you go ahead and sulk, but I'm going to let you have a heart check moment here. So go ahead and check because there's some junk that needs dealt with. Verse 6, and the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm, and the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east heat to blow on Jonah, and the sun beat down on his head, and he grew faint, and he wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. How often are we convinced that our situation is certain doom, certain death, And yet we are the ones who have put ourselves in the situation. We are the ones sitting on the sideline sulking because God shifted the plan on us. Well, God, you said last night we were going to do this. Now we're doing that. It's not fair. We sulk and we drama and we try to figure out all the reasons God should have stuck to our plan. I've done it. I don't know if you have, but I've done it. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, Okay, well, buddy, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly, but Nineveh, oh, Jonah, Nineveh 
has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? See, God is speaking grace to Jonah, and only Jonah can see his reputation on the line. God's talking about grace for 120,000 people, and Jonah's like, but what about me, God? Are we sulking over a change of plan that God has allowed, over a change of plan that's going to save a generation, a nation, a people, create them into a royal priesthood? See, God was allowing this grace in a most unfathomable way for his greatest enemy because he had a really great plan. You know what he was doing? He was bringing the Gentiles to his heart. You know who the Gentiles are? Do you know that if God had stuck to the plan of Jonah, we might not be sitting here under the grace of God? My friends thought that their son was being influenced by the devil to tell lies, but really they just didn't understand the perspective of how he was being taught. They did not know the truth. They had not realized yet to see things from a biblical perspective to search the scriptures to know God's ways and God's heart. I think God was trying to teach Jonah to live in his timing and not his own. I'm guessing that was probably worked out in the belly of the fish. He's recalling all the truths he learned as a child growing up as a Hebrew, learning the truths of God's word from God's people. But yet Jonah is angry that God shows compassion He has the lineage of a people that received compassion from God, being brought out of bondage, brought out of slavery, and yet he's ticked when God gives that same grace to a people group. See, God's pointing out to Jonah, hey, Jonah, you're mourning the loss of a simple vine. You've invested nothing in this to create it. He says, I'm using this situation to illustrate to you, Jonah, that I am mourning an entire people group being far from me, a people whom I have created. Here's the important question we're going to ask ourselves as we close. There's three questions. If you're taking notes, you can write them down, or I will text them to you later if you'd like. Is my fear of man so great that I'm unwilling to look like a fool for the sake of God. Jonah looked like a fool, giving that prophetic word and it not coming to pass. I expect God to show me grace, but will I extend him the same grace when he has a change of plans? And then finally, how do we respond when God gives us a word and changes his mind. I want you to just bow your heads for a minute. I'm not going to ask anyone to come up to the altar today or need to respond, but I do want you to have a moment with you and Jesus. And I want you to ask him, truly, God, am I willing, am I willing to let you use me in whatever capacity you want to use me? Jonah was a prophet, but it doesn't have to be prophetic. It can be any gift, any gift set that God gives out. There are many of them. We've taught on them recently. 
But God, am I willing for you to give me a message, to give me a word, to give me an anointing, to give me a calling, and then have me obey, and then you change the plan? Am I willing? Am I willing to look like a fool to others in order to fulfill your plan? Father, I pray right now that the spirit that controls so many of us, which is the fear of man, would be broken off of every person in this room in the name of Jesus. Father, may we be so consumed and so addicted with fulfilling your vows and your calls that we would not be worried about our character being drugged through the mud. We would not be worried about what people would think of us. But God, we would be so humble to say, God, we talked about the plan last night, and this morning the plan has shifted. And you know what, God? That's fine, because I am with you, heart and soul. I am with you. I will follow this new plan. Jesus, we do not know what tomorrow brings. Sometimes we think we do, and we plan, and we try to process what we need to do to accomplish it. But Lord, you know what tomorrow brings. So will you equip and anoint every person in this sanctuary tonight and everyone listening on the podcast that we would have eyes to see the way you see. We would have ears to hear the way you speak, Lord Jesus. That we would be the hands and the feet to have hearts that are broken for people far from you. Father, I thank you that Chris preached the gospel already so that I can just say, well done, those of you who have stepped into relationship with Jesus. We do not want you to do this alone. We want to come alongside you and disciple you. So come find somebody that you know or tell a friend and they can help find a leader to talk to you about what it looks like to step into relationship. Because those Ninevites had spent their lifetime serving the wrong God. And then when they stepped into the grace of God, everything shifted. And those Ninevites are going to be in heaven to greet us, to see us. This is a big deal, church. Jesus is going to use so many of you in this next upcoming season in such significant ways. And I don't want you to back down from it or cower from it or worry what people are going to think about you. I want you to step into it and say, Lord, whatever anointing you have for me, I receive it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Father, thank you for this time with your people. It is all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.